And good morning, church. My name is Andy Maddock. I'm lead pastor here at Valencia United Methodist Church. It is an honor and a privilege to stand before you to share this morning. So we've been going through this Wrestling with Doubt series. We talked about, is there a God in our first week? Can God be loving? And more than that, can God love me? Last week, we talked about, uh, can the Bible be true? What is it? How do we use it in our lives and our stories uh, in a redemptive way? And as, as Vicki shared this morning, we get the softball question of, do all non-Christians go to hell? My position is no, you are free to go. Uh, have a fantastic day. Uh, if you want to hear me go on for about 20 more minutes about why that is, stay in your seat. Uh, because I want to spend some time talking about uh, this idea of hell. And for those of you that have been following me for a while, you might go, this might be the first sermon I've heard about hell from Pastor Andy in forever. I know it's true in this church uh, that uh, I am not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I didn't grow up with one. My dad's a Methodist minister, uh, and it wasn't his pattern in practice to use hell uh, as the means by which to motivate faithfulness in this life as a fear of it. Um, and so when we get into this topic of what do we mean when we say hell, what do it mean when we talk about condemnation and who doesn't go, it becomes a, a powerful and challenging question. You may have hardwired within your history and your story. You may have friends, children, grandchildren who have as a part of their early experience some of the sermons that I heard that I saw about the idea that most of us, most of us are headed to hell. We are a people with deep questions about what it takes to get into heaven, what it takes to live a life of righteousness and to somehow be worthy. Uh, you all know I have tattoos and one of the things that's always funny to me is if you search for do tattoos go to hell, um, that's not how the question gets phrased. But it is one of gatekeeping. Can I have tattoos and go to heaven? So there's this principal concern is, are there choices in life that keep us from God's eternal glory or prepare us for condemnation? I'm going to change the title of Camille's sermon next week. If I'm doing, are all non-Christians going to hell? She's going to preach on, are all Christians going to heaven? And you can come back and challenge her on that one. Hell has a history, friends. This is Dante's Inferno on the screen, these layers of hell that come from his very famous poem, The Inferno, different layers of punishment uh, that allow for a challenge uh, uh, to how you live your life. And there are, in fact, large categories of people that occupy each of these levels of hell. The history of hell informs the imagery that we use. So oftentimes it's this fiery pitch for gates and demons and torturing times. One of my favorite books is called The History of Hell. Not my favorite books, my favorite book on the topic. Uh, it's by... Uh, <laughs> Just come to my house, it's on the coffee table. Um, <laughs> Alice Turner uh, collected the scholarly works on the history of hell and put them in a very lay-friendly reader uh, about different patterns and stories. There are fantastic graphics in here uh, that talk about the patterns that develop in our understanding of this place that we in the Christian church refer to as hell. Incidentally, in trying to pull together pictures for today's sermon, if you go and Google images of hell, you will be shocked by how many people in those pictures are naked and therefore not appropriate for PowerPoints in church. I'm not kidding. For some reason, all of the Renaissance artists and all of the contemporary artists seem to picture the fact that the suffering that happens in hell, maybe because it is so hot, happens to people with very prominent um, glutus maximuses and, and other bits and pieces. And so the vision that we have of hell is of people who are suffering forever and ever and ever. And the tension for this kind of story, by the way, for the people who seem to be uh, most interested in using hell as a point for preaching, seem to suggest that the big issue is, is that all of us 
are worthy of and condemned to hell. And that there are patterns in life or in faith that will help us cross a threshold into heaven. And the fascinating thing for me is that from that place of everybody's condemned and a narrower few get to heaven is that in Christian traditions, you go further and further along the line for those people who are worthy of getting all the way into heaven. Is it the right prayer? Is it the right prayer and the right life? Is it the right prayer, the right life, and the right baptism? Is the right prayer, the right life, the right baptism, and the right blessing of the spirits, maybe even speaking in tongues? Is it the right prayer, the right baptism, the right speaking in tongues, and living a specific life of righteousness where you didn't break specific cardinal sins that would get you into trouble? And so the distance that we have from all of us being condemned to some of us getting into God's grace and glory, to me, stands in contrast to the whole of human history and indeed to the scriptural narrative. Because throughout human history, we have cared about what happens to our dead. There's a 35,000-year fossil record of the fact that human beings have prepared our beloved people for death. That we make choices in where and how we bury them. We create places and spaces. Those of us that will be cremated, uh, that will be cremated uh, often have instructions about what to do with those ashes, how to keep them, where to spread them, what to do with them. We care about what happens after us when we die, and we care specifically about what happens when those we love have died as well. And so the question I ask, church, is when it comes to preparing for what comes next, when we talk about death and heaven and hell, is it a question of we are doing this for them, or are we doing this for us? Because when it came to the pattern of the Egyptians and the sarcophaguses and that pattern, they're preparing for what comes next for them. They're making choices about how the body is prepared. You might also use some of the classic mythological imagery of the coins on the eyes that pay for uh, passage across the river Styx. Burying with certain riches so that they can pay a toll that is worth the weight of their soul. Throughout history, we've really tried to wrestle with the idea of what we could do to help our dead, good or not, get to a place like Valhalla or heaven. Or is it for us? Do we really want to care for our dead because they have mattered to us? Because even in their passing, their story doesn't end with us. We love them and we want to know what happens. It becomes a spiritual question, church. A spiritual question for you and for me in this regard. Especially when you start to get into the weeds in our questions on doubt. For the people who really struggle with this in a big way, Can a loving God really condemn everybody who doesn't have the right pattern of life, prayers, and practice to a place of eternal suffering? What about the people who don't know Jesus, who've never heard His story? Do they go to hell? What about the young child that dies during pregnancy or before they can even speak a prayer or have a belief? Are they sent to hell or are they sent to some other type of purgatory system because they haven't done what it takes to merit and earn their way into heaven? See, when you get into the weeds, these questions of doubt begin to fill you, and you begin to wrestle with that fact. And there are people who do not share the pews with you today because the answers that they've gotten from either Scripture or from their church have pushed them away to the boundaries and said, this is not for me. And so in our series on wrestling with doubt and finding faith, I want to weigh in with you, talk about some of the ways in which I've come out the other side, some answers I feel comfortable with and that may be helpful for you. But a lot of it has to do with attention, not just about 
who gets in because we're right as good Christians, but this question of what to do with other religions in the first place. What does God do with the fact that there are tons of people out there in the world, particularly in the global community, who have sought faith, spirituality, God, and the divine in a way that is different than us here in Valencia, California? Does God condemn all of them to a place of suffering and death because they haven't gotten it figured out like us? I want to name attention. There are Christian brothers and sisters preaching this morning within a good stone's throw of here, not real close, for whom their answer is yes. If they don't believe like we do, if they haven't done what we've done, then yes, they are condemned to hell, and that's the struggle. So we ought to do everything to evangelize to them and to bring them into the fold. But for me, when I spend time in God's Word and I consider what God actually says about the experience of other nations, other religions, and other practices, the difference is striking. The first is that in the Old Testament, God often addresses people in the midst of a a, a pantheon of experiences. God is the God of Israel who calls Abram from his land, delivers his children from Egypt, and establishes them as the kingdom of Israel, and then Israel and Judah, Judah, the 12 tribes. That pattern of Old Testament theology. God considers the other gods, particularly Baal and everything else, in a place of competition. And there's this pantheistic, this God of nations pattern in the Old Testament that is blind in the stories. Now, the goal of the Old Testament is to convince you and I and the people of God in Israel that there is one God and God is mighty. That's the testament of the Psalms and all of the other passages that highlight the sense that this one God is elevated above others. But the Old Testament pattern is such that these nations will serve to struggle. They will serve as a witness to us. And when it comes to death and dying, the image is not of a condemnation to hell. They have a place called Sheol. It's a place where everybody goes when they die in the Old Testament. The good, the bad, and the ugly wind up there. It is simply the land of the dead where we go and we are no longer alive. There are a handful of people, a very exclusive group, far more exclusive than the most rigid Christian church who are called to the bosom of God and get to go to what we would consider to be heaven in the Old Testament. Instead, the judgment of God that's poured out on people in the Old Testament has nothing to do with the condemnation about the end of life. It has to do with prosperity and how you live your life. Whether or not your children are healthy, your crops are healthy, your land develops, things like that. That's where the challenge is. Now, when it comes to other religions and the practice of heaven and hell in the New Testament, it gets even stranger. Like I said, we have a 35,000 year of human history of people caring for their beloved dead about a 6,000-year story and about a 4,000-year written history in the Old Testament, and Jesus who's only been here for 2,000 years. So at the time of Christ, the nuances and the development of what happens when we die is in full bloom. And Jesus pulls from a couple of different visions and understandings that I think are very helpful for us. But only insofar as you live into attention and understanding that Jesus comes as an incarnate manifestation of the love and grace of God. He comes as a redeemer, not as a condemner. But Jesus, 12 times in the New Testament, talks about a place called Gehenna. Gehenna is a practical place you can visit. It's a valley. It no longer looks like it did at the time of Jesus. But the valley of Gehenna at the time of Jesus was perpetually on fire. It was their dump. This was waste management or Burtek, depending on where you live now. And rather than kind of sorting that into cans so that we could reuse things, they would take all of their trash, that which was unclean and unholy and unworthy, often which couldn't be handled by priests or people who were in a a phase of penance, that kind of trash was taken out to Gehenna 
and was burned and consumed there. Interestingly enough, offerings are made by fire in the temple as well. That which is a good gift to God is burned and sent to God. That which is bad, unholy, and profane is taken out to Gehenna and burnt up and consumed there. It was the kind of place that would terrify young Andy. Because at a time where the only light that was available was candles or lamps, Gehenna was always on fire. You could look that direction and see its glow. And so this sense of awe about it arose by the time of Jesus. And he talks about the idea of people being sent there in suffering. Twelve times in your Gospels. But more often than not, what Jesus talks about is the sense that there is a darkness in the midst of the parables and judgment where people will be sent out into a place of darkness and gnashing of teeth. Not to a place of fire and consummation, but of distance, of absence, of darkness. And it's, that's a place where, be it FOMO, a fear of missing out, or suffering, we are gnashing our teeth because we've missed out on the abundance. He does that in his parables. Parables are anticipatory teaching. They're not a time where Jesus is looking at something and say, aha, there is a banquet that a king has thrown. He's talking about a possible future as a way of helping us to understand how we might live our lives. So he looks and he says, it's like a banquet, a wedding banquet. And when somebody comes who's not ready, not dressed appropriately, and the king has to toss them out, they go out to a place of darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're set aside. They're cast aside. But for Jesus, this sense is bringing people in, greeting the woman at the well from Samaria, wandering through this place to take those who are non-religious in a Judeo-Christian mentality, and helping them to find their way into the kingdom of God. Now, our scripture for this morning that I want to wrestle with and spend just a wee bit of time with comes from the book of Acts. Acts was written by the writer of the Gospel of Luke, uh, and it tells us, oh, I apologize, I skipped one page ahead. The other major thing in terms of this judgment with the land of darkness is this picture from Matthew 25. What happens in Matthew 25 with the sheep and the goats is an important piece because it all starts in the parable of Jesus in this way. And in the end, the nations shall be gathered before Jesus. And he will sort them into the sheep and the goats. Not based on religiosity, not based on national identity, not based on how they voted, but on a pattern and practice of living. How they recognized Jesus in the least of these, in the broken, in the needy. And so this pattern of God revealing God's self in other patterns and other religions, for me, crops up best in the book of Acts, where Paul gets the chance to preach in Athens, a city that's absolutely surrounded by shrines to other gods, gods of fertility, gods of peace, gods of war, gods of strength. And in a place like that, he stands up and he gives this sermon. Paul then stood in the meeting of Ergopus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. You see, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples that are built by human hands. And God is not served by human hands if God needed anything. Instead, he himself gives everyone life, breath, and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that we should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any of us. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. For as even as some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. God creates this interreligious tension in the world. These unknown gods that are part of the worship experience in Athens. Why? So that the divided people may seek God and not themselves. So that God might reach out and find them to be transformed by them. It's a powerful witness that says God cares about all and all who seek God. Other passages in the New Testament that reinforce this. 1 Timothy 2 says God wants all people to be saved. That is God's desire. John 14 talks about in my Father's house there are many rooms, dwelling places, mansions, houses. There are places to spare that God has prepared for all. Titus says the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. And 2 Peter says God's patience is not for you or for me. It is for all. And so we live into this question, this tension then. Do non-believers or those who practice other faiths, do they then get condemned in this system? I want to turn to a more contemporary church father, not an ancient one. The writings of C.S. Lewis from my heavily marked up definitive collection of the Chronicles of Narnia. If you're not familiar with this, well, we'll call it a children's story, but it's, it's allegorical preaching. It's the story of Aslan, the lion stand-in for Christ, and by the final battle, his struggles with Tosh, who is a, a, a symbol of uh, Satan and that which is demonic. And there is the anti-hero who now comes before Aslan, and these are the words from the final battle. So then I fell at his feet and thought, surely this is the hour of death, for the lion who is worthy of all honor will know that I have served Tosh all my days and not him. Nevertheless, it is better to see the lion and die than to be Tisroch of the world and live and to have not seen him. But the glorious one bent down and touched my forehead and said, Son, thou art welcome. And I said, But alas, Lord, I am no son of thine, but a servant of Tosh. And he answered, Child, all the service that thou hast done to Tosh, I account as a service done to me. If any man swears by Tosh and keeps his oath for that oath's sake, it's by me that he's truly sworn, though he know not. It is I who rewarded him. And if any man does cruelty in my name, then, though says he is Aslan's, it is Tosh whom he serves, and by Tosh his deeds accepted. Do you understand, child? I do. But I've been seeking Tosh all of the days of my life. Beloved, said the glorious one, unless thy desire had been for me, thou wouldst not have sought so long so truly. For all find what they truly seek. Go back to Paul's sermon. He set the lands, the places, so that all might reach out to him, so that all might seek him. Even if they don't know what they're seeking, they're living and longing into a hope and a possibility that there is more to life, their life and those that they care about, than what is at their hands. Because this life is so fragile, so fraught with peril. And so I want to give you a couple of answers to the question of heaven and hell and who goes where. They're all a part of the Christian tradition in some way, shape, or form, although they're not all part of the work of Methodism in this church. The first is Christian exclusivism, who's defined by the word only. Christian exclusivism says only those who have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior will go to heaven. 
They exclude all others and put everyone else to a place of condemnation. Even those who would claim Christ, but don't do it in the way that they would have them do. They exclude so many others except for that exclusive, that, that special point in their story. This position on eternity of only the right ones get in is very dangerous. It puts almost all of us, and I'll put myself in this position right here in this place, and very few get the step across into the glories of eternity. At the other end of the spectrum of this conversation is one that is not guided by only, but guided by the word all. And that's called Christian universalism. And the scriptures that I quoted just before this time are in large part a part about that word. God wants all people to save. The grace of God is available to all people. God's patience is for all. If what Jesus does is not for everybody, then it's not for me. Now this is different than those of you who have friends in the universalist Unitarian practice. This is a sense that Christ's work is for all whether they know it or not. They're all going to be redeemed by Jesus even if they never believe in Him. My struggle with Christian universalism, even though it eliminates the need for a hell because everybody gets into heaven, is that sense that it does not then matter who I am or what we do. We're all part of some larger machine that just keeps cranking out humanity and marching towards heaven. The third possibility and the practice of modern Catholics, many Protestants, and John Wesley and Methodism, is Christian inclusivism. Christian inclusivism. And its defining characteristic is not only, it is not all, it is all if. All if. It talks about the sense that there may be a heaven, and there may in fact be a hell to which some would be condemned, But it is a work of God to determine the value of each. And oh, by the way, that inescapable grace of God will continue to be offered even after death. And that it might be that hell, those who are hell bound, those who are there have the opportunity for redemption in their eternity. That God does not condemn anyone to permanence, to long-term suffering because that betrays the love of God. C.S. Lewis put it this way. The doors in heaven, or I'm sorry, the doors in hell are locked on the inside. It is a perspective of standing apart from. Christian inclusivism allows for a radical sense of human freedom, and it's why I find it attractive. I believe that we all have free will, and we all have accountability there and into the choices of our human freedom. And so in the midst of that freedom and that choice, one of the things that I can do with how I live my life today and how I live my life in eternity is to turn my back on God and say, you are not for me. I've heard the sales pitch. I've heard the hope. I've heard the longing. I've even done the seeking. But I'm going to go another way. We see that vibrantly in some patterns in life. But we may also see that in eternity. So what then of hell? What do we do with hell? Well, I'm not of the opinion that we ought to do away with hell altogether. I'm not going to stand before you today and say there is no hell. There are people in your midst who would affirm that theological position. And I... I'd be happy to be wrong. I think the question of hell helps us to deal with some very fundamental and powerful questions that we have as human beings. What do we do with the most vile of those who have lived their lives? Should there not be some consequence? Should there not be some time out? 
But beyond that, I also look at it from the other side, and I hear the stories, particularly with those who have deep and abiding doubts about their lived life and the expression of the church, that say, what then should I do with the fact that it is Christians who are the ones who have hurt me? What does God do with Christians who have hurt others and who hurt the world? But what I do condemn and what I do disagree with is the use of hell. I don't use it as the great motivator for how we ought to live our life in faith or who we ought to be. I don't use it as the single metric for what we ought to do with our lives or why we should choose faith in the first place. For me, it's arguing from the place of the negative. The debating strategy that says I'm right because everything else is wrong. It's not who I am or how I'm hardwired. Because what I do believe in is a God of grace and abundance who is moving in and through the human experience. And throughout the whole of my ministry and the whole of my life, I've been challenged with opportunities to engage with faithful people in interfaith dialogue. To wrestle with, to spend time with, to find my faith in the midst of the conversations that I have with others who look and see at God and hold God in focus differently than I do. And our relationships with non-Christians for me begin and end with the biblical affirmation and commandment to love our neighbor and to love our enemy. Even when it feels like it is a question of faith that makes someone our enemy. I'm not arguing from a place that all faiths are the same, nor are they all equal. I think there are certain patterns of religious practice, often some that carry the banner of Christendom, that are dangerous, that are harmful, that exclude and that hurt. They're not the same as those that are giving life, community, hope, grace, mercy. But in the midst of that, we are still called to love the people who are not us. If we turn our back on non-Christians or we begin to be the ones who are trying to sort out the dynamic of who is in and who is out for ourselves or for our neighbors, we miss, on the we miss out on the power and the beauty of friendship and relationship. Church, I truly believe that we are created to be in relationship with God and with others, even those who are diverse from us, who don't look like us, who don't pray like us, who don't act like us, because in the midst of that friendship, in the midst of that diversity, we see God manifest. God appointed that diversity so that we might seek God, that we might reach out and find God. And God will not abandon us to our sense of loneliness in that. Those relationships are an opportunity for us to share in our best, and our best practices, even when they're not the same. Lord knows that the pattern of work, of life, and faith, and interfaith conversations, and even with agnostics and atheists, and all of that spectrum of people who are not me and not like me, provide a variety of practices that are different than mine. But we can share in our best. We can be inspired by their practice and by their story. One of the things that Adam Hamilton, the the progenitor of this series talks about is that when he met with Muslim leaders in Kansas City, he was so convicted by their pattern of praying five times a day that he himself started to pray with intention at least five times a day. It was a best practice. When he met with the Buddhist leaders in Kansas City, he was so struck by their sense of mindfulness that he committed himself to being a more active listener, to be present in the moment, and to strive even as a Christian to do what he could to divorce himself from his dependence on wealth, and stuff. For me in this last week, I have been comforted by my Jewish friends 
in what is a, a mitzvah, a good act for them regularly, to offer to those who are grieving, may their memory be a blessing. Corey's been a blessing in his memory to me and to mine. We can take what is best in them and learn. But we always remember, church, and we close with this idea that Christ is our best. As Christians, we affirm a God who so loves the world that he sends one who is incarnate in our midst, who offers love, grace, and dignity to all, who did not turn his back on those for whom even his disciples who listened and followed him said, why is this person condemned? Was it their sin or their parents' sin that makes them suffer, that makes them blind, that casts them out? He draws in the leper, the hungry, the vulnerable, offers them seats at the table and in the very kingdom of God. We can begin to divorce ourselves from a pattern that says the only thing we have to offer the world is a chance to be good and to be right so that they don't go to hell when they die tomorrow. We can instead offer a Christ who cares deeply about how you live your today, how you treat others, how you offer grace and dignity and service His body in the world. Friends, I invite you in the week to come to lean into these places in the sermon that you're challenged by. My sermon notes are in our church app, and if you're in a small group, or even if you just want to email me and talk some about it, I know that this might stir some things in you as surely as it stirs things in me as we get ready for this. But let's close with a word of prayer.